Good day to you, Rising Man family. This is Sean Barry with episode six of First Nature right here on the Rising Man podcast. Today, my story, my story, my story of how I got here. How, how did I turn out to be here today behind a microphone talking about how awesome nature is and how much I love the planets and why I think that's a really valuable and important experience for everyone to to explore and to get into for themselves. Yeah, so just gonna get a little personal with y'all and uh, just talk a little bit about my childhood, um, some of the formative experiences that uh, gave me an opportunity to see nature in a way that maybe other youth didn't get a chance to, how I sort of responded and moved with that over the course of my getting into my adult life, making decisions about careers and, um, and also just how the climate conversation was coming alongside that time of my uh, formative years and culminating into today being a man in his 50s who really has designed my life to keep me as closely connected and in harmony with all the natural processes and systems that we find on this planet. And it's no easy task. So all that and more, but first, before we jump into that, just wanted to remind you all. Um, so part of the way that I am able to uh, keep on the path of doing what I want to do with my passions and my uh, vision of uh, what makes a beautiful life and, and to push and you know find the space to put that into the world, well, it's because I have support. I have support from a lot of people, but most particularly, I have the support from a lot of men. And if you're a man out there who doesn't really have what you would consider like a brotherhood, or uh, a community of men and women around you who uh, know what you're up to in the world and are behind you and helping you problem solve and solution and just be there to listen as you uh, you know go forward into the world. Well, I think Rising Man might have something for you because that's all we do. We bring men together and we bring men together and they go through programs where they learn more about their leadership. They learn how to clarify their vision. They learn how to open up and connect deeply with other men around them to find that support and that camaraderie and that friendship and that brotherhood that it takes to really uh, birth your vision into the world and then take the steps to actually keep it on track and keep it in the real physical world. So many of us have ideas and concepts and dreams and business plans and ideas for whatever that just stay in our heads, right? Or maybe they get out a little bit in the conversation, but we never quite seem to find the time or understand how to meet that first step or uh, you know, just feel scared to shake our lives up that much. And uh, you know, that can be painful. That can be uh, a really hard way to live life, knowing that you are limiting uh, yourself because you just can't see the next step or just don't know how to meet that next step or just can't do it by yourself. And that's hard. That's that's every man. That's everyone who's ever had an idea and wanted to put it out into the world. So what does it take then to actually live that life you envision for yourself? Well, it takes community. It takes having people around you who are committed and consciously choosing to support you, who are ready and willing at any time to remind you what you're up to, remind you who you are, remind you of your gifts and your attributes and your strengths. And they're there to support you when your weaknesses and your challenges and your obstacles uh, get you down. And it's not easy to find that kind of community. It takes a long time to build uh, solid relationships that are ready to endure through that kind of intimate connection. Connection that is all about uh, wanting to see each other um, excel and do our best in life and, and to bring our gifts out to share with each other. 
And that's what uh, Rising Man is all about. That's what we do. All the programs uh, that you can find on the on the website, um, you know, how to develop your leadership, how, how to clarify your vision, how to identify your gifts, how to um, go through, uh, you know, challenges uh, with conviction that push you through to the other side when the chips are down and they're going gets rough and building a brotherhood and a community of men who are ready there to step in and get your back when that going is rough. So uh, yeah, check out the website, sign up for something, get in the game. I guarantee that whatever you get from those courses and uh, whomever you meet, they could be with you the rest of your life if you choose to bring them in that way. That's how solid they are. And um, that's how I'm doing what I'm doing because I've got that support from men. And it's how the men that I know and love are doing what they want to do and, and, you know, pushing themselves further into their visions of life because they've got my support. So, uh, yeah, all that's waiting for you. Risingman.org. Check it out. Uh, But now we're going to talk about nature. We're going to talk a little bit about um, this amazing planet and all that it has to offer us as humans. So here we go. life story. So I was born in 1966 and uh, my earliest memories were of living um, somewhat rurally, not really a suburb because it wasn't like a housing addition, but there were, you know, we had neighbors, but we were on a relatively quiet road and um, didn't really think much. I had any kind of awareness of nature as a thing until I was probably, uh, I don't know, seven, six, seven, around there. At that time, we had moved um, uh, down the road. This is in Michigan, by the way. I grew up in Michigan. And uh, <clears throat> we, uh, my dad had built a house, and uh, we had about five acres that backed up to open space. And um, so I have these really wonderful memories of being pretty little, like, you know, six, seven, eight years old. And, uh, back in that day, um, you know, parents didn't worry too much about their kids running around outside. So we were outside all the time, all day. And I remember going, if I went back to the back of the property, there was like a big brush line where we stopped mowing our lawn. And then it was just like, you know, high weeds and then getting into some trees and, um, and just that open space. And I remember there just came a a certain time where I really wanted to go back there and just check it out. And interestingly enough, it was, it was like one day I, it was just, that was the end of the yard where we stopped cutting the grass. And then the next day, all of a sudden it was like the veil was lifted and I had this deep, deep (laughs) curiosity about like what's back there. So that was a, probably my first distinct memory. And, um, so I remember talking to my parents, you know, asking permission to go back there and they were cool with that. And, um, so I did, I started uh, kind of punching through there a couple days and just, you know, something about just exploring the density of, of wilderness, being in the high weeds, not being able to see far, uh, the density of the trees, um, seeing signs of animals like tracks or scats or uh, seeing the, you know, hearing a bird flitter up in a tree and not really being able to see anything but the silhouette of it because of how dense the tree lines were and the, and the leaves. All that just became a new intrigue for me. Now, the interesting thing about that uh, patch of 
kind of unused land. It was it was maybe like fifty yards deep, which you know for a young kid that's that's kind of a lot of space to kind of go back into. But after about thirty or fifty yards or so, you you uh, kind of break out of the the uh, brush, kind of small tree line there, and there was a golf course. There was a golf course um, behind our house that I never knew about. So there was another sort of interesting landscape. And what was uh, really cool about that was there was actually a, a creek, I guess you call it a creek, that went through the golf course and kind of wrapped around the side of our property and went down the side of our property, actually more on the neighbor's property. So we never really went over to the creek because there was also a lot of trees on the, uh, the, the property line too. But right there where I came out of the brush at this golf course, the, the creek also kind of came right down through there. So it was, I literally came out, walked 10 feet onto the golf course green. It was towards the end of the day. So it really wasn't anybody on the course. And we were pretty far down on the course too. So we really weren't near where the clubhouse was or the parking lot or anything. Uh, so it's kind of easy to sneak onto the golf course. Um, but right there also is where the creek kind of started to cut through the golf course too. So uh, that became really interesting because it was a pretty deep gorge. And uh, the golf course obviously had taken down any trees or brushes that were growing up too high along that creek line. So it was pretty easy to drop down into that little gorge and get down to where the water was. So a um, handful of, you know, forays back in there. And I remember I was kind of a big snake fan and... Uh, had a lot of um, you know books on snakes and talked about snakes a lot, but again, I hadn't really encountered them in real life yet. This is still pre you know I wasn't really immersed in nature so much yet. Uh, most of the snakes I had seen, and pretty much all the snakes I had seen, um, were in the zoo. So in this creek here, the way that the sides of the of the banks went down is pretty steep. And it was all this real dense kind of ivy, you know, kind of low growing, spreading uh, ground cover. And I remember I'd been going back there to explore for about a week. And one day I was down in there and I stepped up the side of the uh, bank to kind of go back up. And it's like the entire, it seemed like the entire side of the bank underneath my foot just like made noises. And I could just hear things moving away from me in this uh, deep ground cover. Couldn't see anything. So at first I was super startled. I was also super intrigued too. So got down a little closer and with a stick, I kind of pulled back some of the ground cover a few times and I kept hearing these sounds move and turns out what it was, was a bunch of garter snakes. So apparently, um, it must've been, yeah, spring or early summer because there was probably a dozen at least from what I could tell, from what I remember, of little snakes about six inches long, all just kind of like slithering out from their home base uh, where my foot was. So super excited. Uh, and I knew about I knew about gutter snakes. I wasn't scared of them. I knew they weren't poisonous or dangerous. So went back down there again a day or two later and I caught a couple. Um, brought them back and with my dad. So I kept them in a like a, just a box for a few days while me and my dad uh, banged out a little... Um, a little terrarium for them in the garage with uh we went and got a piece of plexiglass for the front and then just had some extra plywood and some meshing for the top and we just made this little like i don't know like a two by three box and i painted a little mural on the back so the snakes would feel at home and uh i put those two snakes in there those two gutter snakes and kept them all summer and i'd feed them small toads feed them crickets I'd watch them eat. Um, cool thing about garter snakes is they eat their food live. So particularly with frogs, it's, it's just a little, uh, 
it's unsettling, but also fascinating to watch uh, a frog get swallowed while they're still alive. Not for the faint of heart, but it is pretty fascinating to watch. And, uh, and that was the first, you know, that time, I guess I was probably, yeah, like seven-ish, eight maybe, was I, where I really had a, a conscious choicefulness around just engaging with nature so directly, you know, going out and catching snakes and keeping them for the summer and, and really having a relationship with something from the natural world um, that, that was pretty, uh, you know, pretty palpable. Because I'd have to go out and catch, you know, crickets and toads every couple of days and, and feed them. And, uh, and I loved it. So that went on for the summer. And then towards the fall, when it was, you know, starting to, the season was ending, I, I let them go because they needed obviously to um, hibernate and prepare. And that was uh, a really powerful experience. And I consider that my first nature connection experience. Sometime after that, when I turned about 10, uh, we moved again. And this time we moved, we ended up in an old farmhouse off a gravel road in rural Michigan. And uh, we had seven or eight acres and we were surrounded by, um, by uh, cornfields, cornfields, soybean, and wheat fields. And then in a lot of those fields, there'd usually be some kind of tree line uh, or unused section, you know. So and we were there for 10 years. So from ages 10 to about 19, I was spending a lot of time outdoors. Um, we had a little creek that went through the back of the property too. So uh, it was really great to go down there and just there was the frogs and the water bugs and uh, the tracks from all the animals that came to get water. We had animals on our farm. So I was also interacting with uh, chickens and goats and ducks and pigs and cows and horses at one point. We had a huge garden. So that was also um, the time where just really having a interactive uh, hand and where my food came from started to come in. We had a big garden. Um, we had a big family and uh, my dad was laid off. He was union. So he couldn't really go find work. Um, and it wasn't, uh, the union compensation wasn't really enough for us to, you know, survive with uh, eight kids and two adults. So we put this huge vegetable garden in and we basically froze or canned almost everything out of it. Yeah, that was um, the age where I really started to get this uh, understanding. And again, didn't really consciously get it. You know, this is just all experiential. Um, but really understanding where my food came from because we butchered a lot of the chickens and the rabbits uh, for, for meat and, uh, and the pigs as well. And we also milked our goats for milk and all the food we took out of the garden. I really started to have a fundamental understanding of like, what does it take? What does it take to actually live as a human on this planet? It wasn't all roses. Uh, I didn't really enjoy working in the garden on my summer break. But uh, looking back and as an adult back in those times, though, it's, it's amazing how much we, uh, our family lived off that land and, and the animals that we kept on it. Also, growing up rurally and growing up without a lot of money, there just, you know, there wasn't a lot we went and did uh, just because we had a large family and it's hard to move a big family around. And obviously, if we wanted to do anything as a family, cost was going to be an issue with a lot of kids. So we spent, you know, a ton of time outside. We just entertained ourselves. I hiked a lot, although we didn't call it hiking. We just called it going for a walk down the road or walking out to the back property. 
Um, I used to always ask permission to go walk across two of the 40 acre fields uh, to get to uh, another uh, field that was still hadn't been turned into a field, still had a lot of trees and just kind of open wild space in there. And, um, and that became, uh, you know, sort of like a, a magical place to me, particularly that spot, because I had to walk across these two fields and depending on what time of year it was, um, either these fields were fully growing crops or they were just, you know, turned under for the year and it was just a big, huge open space. And there in the distance, there'd be this, you know, stand of trees. And at this point, I'm like a tweener, you know, getting into my early teens. I'm starting to read a lot of uh, fantasy, uh, medieval, you know, Tolkien and um, Chronicles of Narnia and uh, Black Cauldron, you know, all these um, just uh, wonderful, magical, mysterious stories about archetypes and and just being on the land and how much of, you know, the kingdoms, right? The kingdoms that all these stories took place in and how much the landscapes sort of painted the picture of uh, what the adventures were about. So I remember like I'd be walking across these fields and just let my imagination start to run. And I'd make up these stories about how I had to travel across these open expansive lands uh, in order to get to the enchanted forest, you know, and, and then I get to that forest and it, because it was surrounded by open space, uh, especially at the end of the harvest season, it really felt like there was some magic there. Like, why was this particular stand of trees not cut down, you know? And, and all that was going on inside that tree with uh, the different trees that were growing and the different grasses and bushes that were growing and just, you know, so much to just see. And I think that was really the big thing. It wasn't really so much the smells or what I heard or even how things, you know, the sensations of touching things. It was really just the visual of the density of the trees and just the way the branches had their, you know, the way they spread out and had their little knobby uh, knots and uh, the way the leaves, the different types of leaves and just seeing leaves drop, you know, from the treetops and something mesmerizing about watching a tree, uh, watching a leaf fall and, and just the way the, the sunlight would dapple through uh, the canopy and stuff was always so very, very uh, just magical to me. So I spent a lot of time out there. That was, um, you know, that, like I said, that went on until I was probably 16, 17. Um, you know, then I got my driver's license. So obviously I, I was free to go out and see the bigger world and started getting inter interested in, you know, um, other things like girls and such. So I, I kind of stopped getting so immersed in nature at that point and um, went to college at one college I was going to, there was some open space across the road. And, um, and again, it reminded me a lot of just that magical portal, like stepping the shoulder of the road and, and that feeling like a, a step into a magic place and, you know, going deeper in to the point where the road noise disappeared. And when you turned around, you didn't even know that there was a road back there, you know? And again, just the beauty of the way the, you know, depending on the light of the day, the clouds, um, what time of day it was, the season. I just started to see so much beauty in nature. And that was uh, really accidental. I wasn't trying to do that. I wasn't looking for that. I just really enjoyed being outside. I went outside a lot. And at a certain point when I was getting to my late teens, I just started to develop this uh, deep appreciation for the beauty of nature. Um, but again, it really was just kind of me. I didn't really have a lot of friends in college. I was a little bit of a loner. Um, Certainly none of them were uh, wanting to go walk in the woods, you know, 
on their free time. And um, so that was by and large a pretty solo experience for those years. Moving forward, when I left Michigan and moved to California, I ended up in Los Angeles. And, you know, for a Midwest boy who was running around in cornfields, <laughs> um, Southern California and, and just the states in and of its own had so much to see, so much to offer. I mean, there was the beaches, the mountains, the ocean, the forests, the deserts, and all the micro ecosystems in between. So I was, I was in this, uh, you know, the first several years that I was in uh, the Los Angeles area, I was, whenever I could, I would jump in the car and just get out into the landscapes and uh, was just continually stunned and full of joy just getting into a, you know, on a hike or on a trail or even just going off trail. Literally, sometimes I would just drive out, you know, to wherever and just find open space and figure some way to get out on it and just go off trail and, and just enjoy being a human walking on the, on the surface of a planet. That started to become sort of the theme uh, of my nature connection journey at that point was uh, as, a, as a human, as a species on this planet that can actually look at the planet it's living on and, and see the beauty and feel the appreciation and understand all the, the systems that it took to cooperate to create a sustainable environment for life to happen, uh, I mean, that was enough. That was, that was what thrilled me, just to be in that state of awe, in that state of mystery. Um, so that went on for a number of years, and it, was, it really wasn't until I turned almost 30 when I had met a newer friend, and uh, he's the first one that had told me about the, the vision quest or the vision fast or you know a traditional wilderness rite of passage, as it's often also called, where you go out for four days and four nights with no food and uh, just water, and you're by yourself in the wilderness. And uh, I had heard about it in passing, you know, in movies, that kind of thing. And um, but he had just done one, and when he was telling me about it, I, I definitely felt some something click in my heart and my mind of of knowing that I need to do that. There's, I, I felt it was the next thing for me. And even at that time, this is uh, probably in my late twenties. Even at that time. I understood that there was something about my connection with nature that was still um, not concretized. Uh, you know, it was still something that was on the side of my life and not in front of my life. Uh, and intrinsically underneath all that, I, I, I somehow intuited, somehow felt that going out to do this uh, rite of passage ceremony was uh, an answer to that, an answer to that. Even though I didn't know what the question was, I just knew that there was something that was going to benefit me deeply uh, if I did that process. And I, understanding that would somehow put me in deeper connection with nature, even though I didn't understand how or why that was going to happen. So I, uh, I did that. I, I um, went on my first uh, rite of passage. Uh, I, I just turned 30. And uh, I did it with... Uh, the Condor Clan, based out of Ventura, California. And uh, it was a six-month process. And this six months, we met once a month, small group, six guys. And we um, went through a workbook and uh, did some readings, had stories, journaled, had discussions about like why we were doing this and what, what did it mean that we were doing this. And, uh, and that's also where I got exposed to a lot of the uh, Native American teachings that are uh, inherent in the Vision Quest model. 
of rites of passage. And uh, it started to open up a door to me again, too, just uh, the way that that spiritual practice talks about nature and includes nature and makes nature a focal point on, um, you know, to focus on in order to be living in alignment, living a good life that way. So um, at that point, I, I started to get a language for my nature connection. We could say it that way. I, I was sitting with people who had a similar interest, um, a similar pull, a similar desire to connect deeper with nature, to connect deeper with themselves. And we here we had this model, this practice that had a, a language around it and, and a practice around it to to do that with. So many of the uh, Native American stories and and really indigenous stories from indigenous cultures around the world, uh, their creation stories, uh, their stories that explain culture and civilization amongst themselves. So many of those stories have... Um, talking animals, talking trees, talking rocks, like everything talks, everything has a voice. And, uh, and humans are able to interact and, and connect with those voices. And I had been, you know, of course, had read those kind of stories before and came across them. But, you know, for me at that time, they all, up until that time, they seemed so much of like, well, that's not for me. That's, you know, I'm a modern human. And that just, you know, it wasn't even something I thought was accessible to myself, even though I loved the idea, you know, just that everything had sentience and everything uh, could communicate. Um, I loved the idea of it, but I didn't really know how, and I, di- and I didn't even have the idea at the time that it could be for me. So I'm not going to go deeply into my personal journey through the Vision Fast process. That's a whole nother uh, story to tell that will take up an equal amount of time. But what, what I will say was, you know, it's four days and four nights and you're by yourself. You don't have any food. Um, you can imagine boredom sets in pretty quick. What do you do with all that time? You know, we spend so much of our time uh, associated with food, preparing food, eating food, sharing food, um, you know, socializing our food, cleaning up food, uh, buying food. So there was uh, no distraction like that taking up my time. Uh, there wasn't anyone there to talk to, you know. And uh, so, yeah, I started talking to the trees. I had a conversation with a tree, had a conversation with a rock, had a conversation with an insect. And, uh, and that really just opened up the, the doorway to my creativity, my imagination, using my creativity and my imagination as, as tools to communicate with anything particularly the, the natural world. And I had some really powerful conversations, believe it or not, you know? And, uh, you know, a lot of people will say like, oh, you're just talking to yourself or it's just your voice and, you know, it's not the, really the rock talking to you or whatever. And yeah, I mean, sure, that's true. And it's more fun to believe that the rock talked to me in my voice, you know, that my voice is really just, um, it's just a speaker you know, that can amplify whatever comes through it. So uh, whether it's me talking to myself or a rock talking to me through my voice, I like that it happens. It it makes my life feel more fun. It makes my life feel more connected to nature. And I don't really need a bunch of science to tell me that it's true or not. That's not really what's important to me. What's important to me is, does it touch me? Does it motivate me and inspire me to act and behave in a certain way. 
I've found that if I, if I invite the natural world into my life as equals so that the, the tree has an equal voice just as much as the rock does, just as much as the bird does, just as much as the blade of grass does, just as much as I do, that if we're all on equal terms with having important voices and how life happens amongst all of us, um, there's something about that that makes me feel safe, makes me feel connected, makes me feel uh, rooted firmly in the reality of how this planet even got to where it is with being able to have life. And uh, I feel like I have a reference point. I have a reference point to measure my actions, to measure my ideas, to measure my visions of what I want to build in the world against, right? Because if it isn't aligned with nature, then as as excited and great as an idea I think that I have, uh, I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let it go because it's going to bring too much disruption to other systems in this planet. Too much disruption to the trees. Yeah, even too much disruption to the rocks. Um, you know, they some say that rocks are, are our oldest ancestors because in our bodies we have all these minerals, right? Where do those minerals come from? They came from the rocks first. You know, hundreds and thousands of years of rain and erosion and everything that it takes to, uh, you know, mineralize these uh, rocks into powder that then is able to get taken up by the root systems of plants and then ingested by the animals that we eat or, you know, ingested by us eating those plants directly. Uh, that's how it works. So it was a really powerful experience to come back down the mountain after those four days and to feel like I just met the planet, you know, and this whole community of, of beings that prior to, you know, that ceremony, I had a passion and excitement for and a love for, but I didn't have a, I didn't have a language for, and I didn't have a, um, I didn't realize that there was communication possible on the way that I had found it on those four days. So there might be some voices out there that uh, will sort of issue the value of being connected to nature that feel that, you know, humans purpose on the planet is to have dominion, you know, that the resources are for us and, and to just take a look at all the amazing things we've done with the resources, uh, the modernity and convenience and safety and security we've built for ourselves. A lot of the beautiful things that humans have done with their creativity and the resources of the planet. And uh, yeah, my answer to that is, um, well, that's all well and good, but um, the bigger looming situation on our hands is the, the climate change, you know? And I would contend that the cultures that are still the most connected to the planets, um, tribal peoples like Aborigines and African cultures and South American cultures that are still living the way that their ancestors lived for tens of thousands of years, that are still living in accordance to the harmony of the ecosystems that they call home, you know, they're the ones on the right track. And uh, it's not that we all have, to, all have to go back to living in grass huts and being barefoot, but uh, you know, what nature connection, what connecting to the planet and the way that I have allowed myself or chosen to connect to the planet has given me is a really wide-eyed, uh, clear, unmasked view about how many of our um, uses of the planet are, have got us into the situation we're in and that they're not sustainable. 
they're not going to last. Not everybody's going to be able to have all the amenities that the few of us have uh, that are really convenient and comfortable. And uh, we're starting to see, you know, the crack in that way of doing things as our climate continues to um, be an upheaval. So I came back down the mountain and I had a different paradigm, a different orientation to who I was and uh, what my relationship to the planet was. From there, uh, yeah, I just continued to deepen that practice when I would go out to hike. Uh, you know, I used to be an avid mountain biker and um, would choose to bike all the time if I was going to go in nature. I loved going down the trails and stuff. Uh, but after I did the vision fast, uh, I realized that I, I didn't want to move so fastly through nature. I actually wanted to slow it. I just enjoyed walking, you know, and uh, not even trying to reach a destination. You know, I'd get on a trail and I would just let the, uh, just whatever was going to unfold come to me. I would take the time to stop and look at little flowers. Uh, I would look at little mouse tracks in the dirt. I would um, enjoy a good sunset. I would, uh, you know, daydream with clouds. I really just allowed that kid-like nature to come back out and to just be, you know, to use my senses, my five senses and the other secondary ones, to just fully experience um, this planet, this natural world around us, this uh, amazing, amazing place we live. And that's what it's been for the last, you know, I guess I, what, I was 30. So yeah, about 25 years now that I've been on my own uh, just journey of connection with nature. Um, all the way through to uh, getting involved in schools and uh, developing curriculums for outdoor programming for youth. Um, also learning how to do rites of passage work myself. So facilitating other people as they go out to do that uh, beautiful four day ceremony and um, find their own connection to nature and this planet. Uh, and right up to, uh, you know, what I'm doing today, which is um, recording this podcast, hoping that it reaches uh, a few ears and inspires a few hearts and turns a few eyes uh, back out towards the landscape. So, you know, what is my message? Why am I taking the time? Why have I uh, chose uh, a relatively uh, challenging lifestyle in order to create the space and time for me to be in nature and to share about nature in the way that I can, that I do. Well, I talk about this a lot on this podcast and uh, it's climate change. And, um, you know, if it wasn't, if climate change was not a thing, if I was doing this podcast like, you know, 15 years ago or 50 years from now, perhaps, if we make it through this change, uh, I don't know if I'd be calling in climate change so much as a, as a talking point, but because it's here and at this point, all of us have seen the headlines and seen the uh, video reels and understand that uh, something very large is happening across the face of our planet. It's a powerful talking point. It's a great way to get people into this conversation because it's so tangible. It's something we are all able to uh, witness and notice in today's world. So in my experience, you know, when I look at indigenous cultures that are still around, the Aborigines, um, South American tribes, African tribes, um, the pockets where they still are, you know, the main thing I see is uh, that they have continued to live in a harmonious way with nature. And to one degree or another, their lifestyles are virtually unchanged. You know, I think the, uh, they say the Aborigines in Africa, or I'm sorry, the Aborigines in Australia, 40,000 years where they've been basically living unchanged in their lifestyles. 
myself and most of the people I know can barely go uh, without upgrading our phone as soon as the next version comes out, you know, a year later. So there's a pretty big, uh, you know, vast difference in the mindsets of what's going on here. And uh, for me, the mindset that says I need to upgrade my phone every year is a mindset that also has created uh, this, you know, the climate change issue, that we are so focused on instant gratification and convenience and comfort and immediacy that we've, we've undercut all the systems that have supported us as a species up until this point. So let's just hold that as a contrast point. Let's look at, you know, on one side, we've got people who have been living the same way for over 40,000 years, whose uh, ecosystems and relationship to their landscapes are stable and sustainable. And then you've got people over here on the other side who at one point, if you go far enough back in each person's lineage, was also living that way, sustainably, uh, resourcefully, uh, you know, stably on the landscapes. But somewhere, you know, and this is a topic for another podcast, but somewhere uh, some people's started to invest in technology, started to invest in the things they made, you know, started to put their attention and their capacity to have relationship onto things that were created from the resources of this planet, from the resources of nature. And now, you know, those people, us, uh, here we are um, having done a lot of damage to our landscapes, to our environments, have uh, endangered a lot of other species, have uh, put all of our focus, attention, and priority on the things that we've made from the natural resources of this planet, from nature, as opposed to having our attention on the resources, the nature, the way that these older cultures still do. And when I say attention, I really mean relationship. You know, when you put your attention on something, you are creating a relationship with it. Um, you have responses to it. You have emotional opinions about it, you know, whether it's a person or a thing. And in the same token, we are then also influenced by those things that we put our attention and our focus onto. You know, that's how relationships work. Uh, we put our attention and focus on something and we are wanting to um, influence it or have an effect on it. And at the same time, uh, we also become open to being influenced and being affected by the, no, the person or the object that we've put our attention towards. Okay, so let's wrap this up. So what happens when we start putting our attention and our focus, when we start developing a relationship with the, uh, the natural world around us to, to become more nature connected? Well, guess what? You'll start thinking about those things. You'll start having considerations for those things. Um, you know, if you've got a favorite plant in your house or if you have a pet, obviously you consider, you know, if you go away for a, a week or two, you typically are going to ask someone to feed your pet or water your plants because you care. It's the difference between having a pig that's a pet, because people do and pigs are really smart, and having a pig that is you see as a source of food, right? One, you're going to have a very emotional relationship with and be very upset if that animal dies. The other, uh, you're just looking forward to it dying so you can have some delicious bacon. So if what's happening in the climate and what's happening... Uh, with our uh, forests and our oceans and our food sources and everything, it bothers you. If it's starting to concern you, I'm telling you right now, the best thing you can start doing is building a relationship with nature. 
right? We're not going to legislate, you know, fixing this planet. We're not going to uh, economically solution what's wrong with this planet. I mean, those things are going to help, but what's really going to make the incentive and the motivation and the priority really clear is caring about it, caring about it on a deep level, caring about it to a, a level that is it's almost painful to see what's happening. Like you feel it in your heart because you love it. Like you love nature. That's where I'm at. Like I love nature. I love, like when I see a single tree, like I really just try to see that tree. I try to imagine that it sees me. I try to feel that on some level we recognize each other and there's a, there's a respect, you know, and if I'm going to harvest something from that tree or, you know, take an animal down to eat it, that I want to give that respect. You know, we all, everything here on the planet understands that there is, there is relationship, right? This whole planet's already in relationship. It's really just the human that has kind of, you know, started to kind of pop out of that relationship in the last, you know, like thousand years or so. Yeah. All the animals out there are eating each other. Uh, plants are vying for space and they have all the little tricks they do to kind of like, you know, keep their space for themselves and not have other plants encroach into it. So I'm not saying that nature is this kind, docile, enlightened uh, environment where there's equanimity between all the species of plants and animals and everybody gets along just fine. Uh, that isn't the case. But what there is amongst all those is relationship. There is a way that the plants and animals and seasons and environment and everything that's going on on this planet relate to each other, right? There is communication happening. There are uh, the way that just cycles and seasons and the birth and death and the sustenance and the way that things get done on this planet and the natural world happen that um, is done almost the same way every time because of the relationship, Right. So again, to think about a relationship, if you have a tennis partner that you play tennis with, and that's really what you guys do, you play tennis, then it's pretty much every time you show up to spend time with that person, you know, you're going to play tennis and that's what's expected. And that's what really uh, makes the relationship harmonious, joyful, and fun. All right. If you showed up with a football, uh, you know, your tennis partner is not just going to immediately say like, okay, and start playing football with you. I mean, at least they're going to want to have a conversation about the nature of the relationship, right? Because obviously you're bringing something new to the game. So in the same way, uh, you know, nature is based on that understanding that there is a pre-established relationship between all the entities that they lean into and cooperate around for uh, life to happen on this planet. It's just that somehow the human has stepped out of that conversation, most of us. But you can step right back into it. Once you care, once you spend the time that it takes to reconnect with nature and you start to care, you will find that you start making different choices about how you live your lifestyle. And that's really the the fundamental basis of how things will change, not just for you and your personal life and feeling more fulfilled and a part of everything in the world, not just the human realm, but for those around you too. I mean, we're all feeling it. We're all feeling the pressure of the climate. We're all feeling the pressure of what happens next in the human story. And will we get to uh, still enjoy all the beauty that this planet has offered us? And, you know, if you change your life and start making some a deeper connection and relationship to nature, that's going to show up in your decisions. It's going to show up in your conversations. It's going to show up in the way you shop for food. It's going to show up everywhere. And it takes time. I'm not saying this is going to happen over a weekend. But having, uh, you know, 
having humans, uh, you know, all of us, having a connection with nature. Imagine that. Imagine 8 billion people who reconnect to nature, who look at you know the plants and the animals as their kin with an equal voice and equal say, understanding that there's a relationship that needs to be maintained and cultured. You know, talking about people like presidents, prime ministers. Imagine if they were nature connected. Imagine if our Congress people, if part of you know the requirement to get into, you know, to be a senator or a, a representative in the House, is to have to, to demonstrate some kind of understanding of some kind of relational component to your life, to all the nature around you. I mean, how, how quickly would our systems change then when we have people who are relationally ready to make change, not just ready with their money, ready with, uh, you know, for fear of, um, you know, punishment if they don't make changes, ready because they truly uh, want that for themselves and want it for their kids. I mean, you have to realize like, two, like you know, when the kids who are around, now kids who are in school right now, like another 10 to 12 years, when they start having kids, and then those kids grow up, that's that's when we're going to really know where we're at, right? They're talking about this 10 to 20 year window that we've got to, you know, make the change. And yeah, it's going to take a tremendous change from the top down with all the systems. But the easiest change right now is for you just to, to go outside and be with nature, to uh, sit on the beach, to hike on the trail, to climb a tree, to watch a snail eat a leaf, to get up early and listen to the dawn song of the birds, to watch a full moon rise. And there's so many opportunities to just go and be in awe with the show of nature that is going around us all the time, 24-7. 24-7 is happening. And we miss it. We miss it. So that's my story. Um, really, really hope that you will take something from this share and incorporate it into your own life. Buy a plant. It could be a cactus. Cactus needs so little care, but just to have it sitting on your, you know, your table, your desk somewhere, just to remind you, you put it on your, on your bed stand and say goodnight to it and say good morning to it. When you wake up, it can be that easy just to get that part of you woken up, that part of us that we all have that knows how to relate, that knows how to connect, that wants to. You know, as you listen to this, you might feel a little bit of a stirring in you, a little bit of a longing of like, yeah, what happened to me? What happened to me and the, and the, you know, the mirror that I see myself so clearly in, which is nature, right? So if we spend that time to regain that relationship, you will see yourself more clearly you will have a better understanding of your most authentic true self. I've, I, I can say that because I've experienced it myself and I can name two dozen men who have also experienced it that I know personally. Nature is powerful. You just need to make some space for it and to go through the awkwardness of you know, how to bring your amazing ability of relationship to, to relate to nature. You know, When I say talk to a stone, um, yeah, most of us are just going to like start talking English <laughs> or whatever your language is, right? And that's going to feel really awkward and kind of silly and kind of foolish. But you'll see if you just keep doing it, if you just keep going out there and exploring and experimenting and cultivate that desire to be fully connected, to, to know that when you walk outside your door, even sitting in your house, because your house, it's made out of nature. You're not separate when you're sitting in your house, right? But especially when you go outside into the world and you just see 
everything around you to know that that is part of you. That's an extension of you. When, you know, when we say, when you hear the concept that we're all one, it's true. It's true, especially on this planet. Everything, you, your body is made out of this planet. There is no separation between you and the dirt you're walking on. It just looks different and has different functions, but it's the same stuff. And once you've developed that depth and level of connection to nature and this planet, then when you say talk to nature, it's not, it's not the words. Right? There's a whole nother level of communication going on between thoughts, feelings, emotions, awareness, sentience, um, just ener- the energy of life that is on this planet and only this planet. It's only here so far. And we've looked at a lot of places. So going to leave you here with that. Um, really encourage you to just uh, to get out in nature. Just get out in nature. Go get out in nature. Doesn't there's no there's no right way to do it. There's no uh, grading system on who's more nature connected than someone else. It's really about just making the decision to be a complete human, a full human, a human who is utilizing and embodied in all of our human functions. And one of that is definitely includes being connected to nature, being connected to nature. All right. That's it for today. That's what we got. And uh, I want to really say thank you for tuning in and listening. I really hope you got something uh, that you found useful and uh, you can take into your life. Don't forget for all things Rising Man, please do head on over to risingman.org and check out our programs. There's a really some really wonderful things to choose from. Um, subscribe to the podcast on the podcast app of your choice. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. All that really helps uh, just get us, you know, noticed, get some exposure. So again, if you're getting something out of, you know, what Rising Man puts out um, and you think there are other men who might find it useful, it's going to make it a lot easier for them to find it if um, you help us out by just uh, bumping up our ratings and getting us that exposure. So appreciate that if you do it. Uh, Major props, major props to the Rising Man power team. That is Mark, Julian, Rowan, and Ryan. Um, It's amazing to me that I can just sit down here and record my voice and then magically watch it show up on the web. Um, That's because of you guys and putting in the time and the effort to clean this up and make it look good. Thank you. So me, again, I'm Sean Barry. And until next time, you know, find out about who you are inside by getting outside.